Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, we have a fabulous chat room, uh, great people in there, great insights, you know, always add additions to the whatever we're discussing on the air, so it's a good place to talk about it, and when you talk about it, you learn even more, so come join us. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. In this week's spotlight, I wish to address the subject of truth. What is truth? Many today argue that it's a relative matter. It all depends on your own personal interpretation. Perhaps in some sense that is true, but does it hold for all areas of our life? And is it what we mean when we speak about truth? If we say gravity is a fundamental physical force that is responsible for interactions that occur because of mass between particles, can we say this is any more or less true than a statement such as science is unable to adequately explain all of the phenomena experienced by human life? Now compare those two statements with this one. Truth is relative. Again, I ask, is it, if so, relative to what? Time and discovery? Perhaps one day we will discover that the law of gravity is really relative, not in the Einsteinian sense, but in the Newtonian sense. But now, just how likely do you really think that is? Perhaps one day science will be able to elaborate and explain the whole of the universe. But that seems highly improbable when you think about it. In a sense, that would require discovering the whole of the universe, And even the great science fiction flicks find that notion to be preposterous. We will forever be discovering, and that is really what true science is all about, inquiry, research, discovery. So what is it that we mean if we argue for truth as a relative proposition? It seems to me that it comes down to values. That is, we don't really disagree about the truth underlying gravity, No, what we may disagree on is the nature of values. So one person's truth about life eternal is another's trigger for argument. One person's perspective on good and evil is another's pivot point for arguing that there is no such thing as real evil, and so on. In other words, the so-called relative nature of truth is all about values. There is one value, however, that we should all be able to agree on, and that is the right to live free, so long as we do not infringe upon the same right of others. Oh, but the infringement may then lead us down yet another disagreement about truth. We see this happening right now as the DOJ takes aim at North Carolina over their new law, describing who can use what bathroom. So once again, the dispute about this thing called truth is always over values. We recognize that quickly, 
and often allow our biases to take sides too quickly. So now the bottom line. There are those who believe that their truth calls for a certain treatment of women, a certain form of living, obedience to sacred laws, and in the name of their beliefs, they visit other countries as suicide bombers. Is this truth just as relative? It turns out truth may turn on your personal interest more than on any objective fact. Is that what we really want truth to mean? Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, the whole issue of truth is uh, really significant. The number of times you talk to people and they say, you know, this is the truth or this is the absolute truth and they shut down listening. So I've certainly um, encountered that before. There are so many things in life that we don't know. We don't know for certain what's on the other side. We don't know for certain, you know. There are lots of, there's lots of indication, lots of signs of everything. Um, but I think it is important to be more open-minded rather than saying, I have the truth, whatever that may mean. Well, it's, it's an interesting subject, and it's not just about the afterlife. I think more importantly, it's about this life and how we conduct ourselves now and here and our ability somehow to, through the mire of differences, concede that there must be some fundamental values that we can all agree upon and attempt to see that they're acted out in a civil society. All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Dr. Michael Nichols and we discussed a revolutionary method for healing grief. Reba wrote, Thank you for your show with Dr. Nichols. I bought his book right away. I have struggled with grief for years, and now I have a new hope. Joanne wrote, I simply love your shows. I learned so much from them. Loretta wrote, I learned something new every day. Thanks to you, I have opened my mind. Now I like that. Moving on, Erica wrote, I've listened to your Intertalk programs off and on for years, and I feel they've really helped me unlock some old, ugly patterns and choose something better. Thank you. DJ wrote, I'd like to say that I own and use and love many of your recordings. I am a work in progress and do credit Intertalk for much of that progress. Thank you. Tony wrote, I've been listening to your Intertalk CDs for about five years now, every day religiously. I have gained a real positive mind no matter what. Dr. Johnson wrote, thank you so very much for your work. I recommend my clients to you regularly. I can bring many things to their conscious but sometimes negative automatic reactions need to be addressed as well. Intertalk is one of the fastest ways to change things, and I very much appreciate all that you do. I have numerous Intertalk and Ozo programs as well as books. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Johnson, and all of you out there for your feedback and support. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. Or by joining me on Facebook, and I want to thank all of you again for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate you. Now to this week's show, the ESP Enigma, the scientific case for psychic phenomena with Dr. Diane Hennessy Powell. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Dr. Diane Powell, a nationally prominent John Hopkins trained neuropsychiatrist and former clinical instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, 
examines the evidence for many types of psychic phenomena, from telepathy and precognition to psychokinesis, and finds several well-designed and rigorously supervised studies that prove the existence of some psychic phenomena. This raises the important question, how is this possible? Her copy reads, Dr. Powell proposes a revolutionary model of the brain and the mind. Consciousness may have properties similar to those of an energy field in physics. A field is defined as a disturbance or condition in space that has the potential of producing a force, much the way a magnetic field polarizes iron filings into a predictable pattern around it. That and other aspects of her new paradigm for consciousness would explain how the mind of a mystic or psychic could have an organizational effect on the physical world. Tests have shown that basically everyone has certain measurable psychic abilities, such as experiencing a psychic connection with a loved one, but the fact that psychic abilities are stronger among prodigies, autistic savants, some people who are bipolar or have suffered certain brain injuries has led to brain imaging and other research that can explain which parts of the brains are dominant in psychics and mystics. The ESP enigma is grounded in decades of reliable scientific research establishing a common ground among psi believers and skeptics. We'll test that today because there are many skeptics that don't quite accept that. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Diane Powell. Yes. Hello, Eldon. Nice to meet you. It's good to have you here today. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. I loved your book, by the way. It's oh, a great thank read. Thank you. I, su- I suggested during today's spotlight that science not only lacks all of the answers, but in all probability never will have them all. Isn't one of the problems with science actually accepting ESP due to an ignorance that suggests we already know all there is to know about this subject? I mean, and if it doesn't fit in the paradigm, then it's got to be incorrect, so it must be a hoax? Well, I think one of the problems, and this is what I talk about in the ESP enigma, is that there are a lot of people who say that ESP is impossible, and yet when they're saying that, they're they're really... How can you say something's impossible if you're really working from an incomplete model? I mean, there's, there's so much in neuroscience that really hasn't been explained. And, for example, you know, free will or, or how it is that we have that concept of being a coherent person, a, that sense of I in quotation marks of, you know, that's acting upon and perceiving and, um, you know, ha- having these experiences in the world that... Uh, you can't really recreate in an artificial intelligence way, and so this, so this idea that science has that we're um, really essentially biological robots—that that is the kind of the model that they're operating out of—and um, and and so the problem is is that that there's a lot of assumptions built into that model, and and there's a lot of evidence suggesting that model's wrong. The so-called meat machine, as we affectionately look at it when you you deal with this uh, biological model. The so-called meat machine, uh, you know, has its own explanatory power. But when you when you look at what you just, you know, your explanation, what you just explained to us, don't you get caught in a conundrum? I mean, is it... 
we can't explain free will with the meat machine, but we can more by looking at activity of the subconscious, fMRI studies, da-da-da, then we can if we predict that or if we claim that precognition is possible and therefore that implies, um, you know, a, a conflict between free will and determinism. Is, is the world determined, predetermined? How do you wrestle with that? Well, one of the ways in which I have approached that question, and one of the reasons why, for me, when I first heard an explanation from someone that both predetermination and free will coexist, when I first heard that, I was willing to accept that as a possibility because of what we know in modern-day physics about the nature of um, the nature of things. You know that that really uh, we've moved away from a Newtonian old school model um, that is a good approximation for the world as we interact with it. You know, and, you know, it, it helps me to drive my car wherever I'm going and that sort of thing. But when you start getting down to the, the quantum level, when you start getting down to the Planck scale, that, that level of physics, then the world is, is so different from the Newtonian world. And it actually enables a lot of these things to be possible that if you're still operating out of the old physics, uh, seem like they, it would be impossible. Well, I, I assume you're addressing the uncertainty principle. And, um, you know, I guess what I look at there is I say, okay, well, let's set that over here. But, you know, whether the cat is alive or the cat isn't, to use Schrodinger's model, if precognition is correct, well, then it knows whether the cat is alive or it is dead. And so the uncertainty aspect of that disappears, and therein seems to be the the real difficulty. I yeah, I that's the model that that uncertainty model using Schrodinger's cat. That's one that is kind of overused in my opinion, and that's not really where I'm coming from when I say um, uh, the quantum world and, and and what it opens up. What I'm really referring to is the fact that consciousness has an effect on the material world. And this is something that's been accepted by scientists. Um, John Wheeler, he, he said that we can no longer describe ourselves as um, just observers of the universe. You know, we are co-participants in the universe. And so his work and that of several other people, where they, they look at the effect that conscious observation of something actually changes it. So it, it shifts something from being a wave into being a particle. So it, it collapses down that wave of potentiality into a, a singular point. And so, so that if you think about free will, free will is that conscious intention that's actually collapsing things down to that singular point. But, um, but there also is a, that there a predetermination that's in play. People find themselves in situations that feel, you know, that, that, that feel destined. In fact, people have had precognitive experiences in which they're like, wow, I, I know that, you know, I knew that this was going to happen. In fact, there's, you know, there's evidence of um, people having, you know, a presentiment. What Dean Radin's work um, shows that people will actually show a response in their recording to something before they've even had the stimulus presented to them, you know, because our, our body physiologically will respond differently to something that is um, beautiful and then to something that's horrific. Right. I'm familiar with that work. In fact, I've, I've 
I've had conversations with Dean Raiden, Bill Tiller, and many of the others, but but the you heard the setup piece about uh, the bias we have behind truth. Right. And the the majority of science disagrees with what you just said. The, the majority of science essentially argues that uh, that that's all part of uh, interpretation. And, and, you know, I've pushed some buttons on people like Wolf. And backed right up on the corner, he says, well, you're right. It is my interpretation. I, I cannot prove that. So is this one of those issues that it's like, well, if I'm biased to believe or if I've had a personal event like the one you had when you were young, and I want to get to that in a minute, that 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 bias predisposes me to accept a certain form of uh, uh, of information or evidence where a different bias, say the bias of Randy, who really goes after you, um, precludes me from accepting objective information that challenges my bias. How much truth do you think there is to that differentiation in what it is that we accept regarding psychic phenomena, the human experience, science itself? I, I think that there's, unfortunately, there's a lot of prejudice um, within the scientific community against things that they really don't have any experience of. And when, when you look at the skeptics, you, you find that they haven't really, they, they actually um, don't want to look at the data. They don't want to see any evidence that it's actually true. And and I think that, um, you know, one of the problems is is that Science has not been really taught. Our educational system has changed so much that science has actually become a dogma rather than being the open-ended um, inquiry process that it was really meant to be. And I was raised, actually, without any preconceptions, and I was raised by a, a father who was a brilliant scientist with three graduate degrees who taught me ever since I was very young that I, I need to um, make up my own mind about things and not, and, 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 and always, you're, you're always looking for does all the data fit the theory? And if the data doesn't fit the theory, then you, then, you, then you try to come up with another theory. But what I see within science is that there's been this uh, protectionism towards people's own theories because that's how they make a living. And so, so science has been, in my opinion, it's really been corrupted. Uh, but so when I go out there and I do experiments, if, I, if it turned out that, you know, my experiments uh, uh, didn't show something, then I'm, I'm one of the first people that will go out and say, you know, they're not showing anything. So I don't really have a my, – my, my agenda is to further our understanding and try to come as close to the approximation of truth as possible. And that really requires us going into it without biases. So I, I, I think – and I think that's one of the reasons why my ability to, to – bridge these two worlds between, you know, that, you know, that have become so polarized. I think that's one of the reasons why I've been um, able to do some of that bridge work, because uh, parapsychologists respect me, but I'm not, I'm not just a parapsychologist. I'm, I'm somebody who has enough understanding of parapsychology that I know the research methodology, I know the criticisms that people have about these kinds of experiments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm also somebody who was a um, neuroscientist. Uh, I've worked in laboratories. I've worked with microscopes, you know, including electron microscopes. I've worked with some of the brightest minds in neuroscience. I understand um, all of that data, all that perspective. And then on top of that, I'm an MD who has seen patients who present to me 
um, uh, situations and experiences that I want to understand. And so for me, it's, it's, I, I wear so many different hats, and, and I understand the perspective that comes from all of them. And, and I'm approaching it from that standpoint rather than, you know, I, I you know, put my stake down and I'm, I, I'm a parapsychologist and, 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 and this is all I study, and, and I'm not going to study the other stuff. To me, I'm, I'm really much broader than that. Okay. Well, and I'm, I want to ask you how your peers respond to that, but, but just in playing devil's advocate, when you were very young, you had a experience that uh, had to bias you some. I'd like you to share that experience with our audience, please. Um, well, I've had I've had more than one experience. Um, well, so I, I'm speaking about, <laughs> about the reader, yes. Uh-huh. Oh, so 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 you're talking about the person that. Um, so when I was when I was pretty young, um, this was oh, when I was you know it's around um, 13 years old. I met someone who worked as a professional magician and um, and met him through a mutual friend and. He did a couple of things that evening that really surprised me, and one of them was he had me um, pick books off of the shelf that were, um, yes, he said, just pick any books off of this bookshelf, and it wasn't his house, it wasn't his bookshelf, um, and I just, and I was standing across the room, there were no mirrors in that room, and, and I picked them up, and then he said, and I'll read it to you, and he was able to actually read it to me, you know, word for word, and when I and and then I did it with another book and um, and I asked him how to do that and he said well it's just magic and so I just actually took you know I was just a kid so I just took that actually at face value you know he's saying it's magic but I just don't understand how that trick works but I don't understand how a lot of magic tricks work so that isn't really that's the first thing that made me wonder about you know is there something here but there was something actually he did later on that evening which he pulled out tarot cards and 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 um, and he started to um, do a, you know, a reading, and he mentioned that this one child had lost his mother, and, and none of us knew that his mother, that he, that his mother wasn't really, um, his mother, you know, his, his real mother had died, and so it was one of those things where that, that also kind of stuck in the back of my head. But what it did was it was just like something that I didn't know what to do with, and and I went on to, you know, become a neuroscientist and go to Johns Hopkins Medical School and get trained in neurology and psychiatry, and, you know, I was going to become a neurosurgeon. So, I, you know, so the impact of that is it just planted a seed of, you know, possibility, but it didn't, um, it didn't bias me one way or the other. I, you know, I, I, I suppose there's a part of me, the psychologist part of me, that says that would be very difficult because, you know, I have had my own experiences, and I know they bias me, despite the fact I try to climb into my left brain over and over and over again. So, you know, there are just those things that deny uh, the ability to be explained within existing paradigms. And I don't know how you hurdle that. I don't know how you... You stop it from biasing, you doctor. It, it's, it's because I, it's because I'm a scientist, um, and 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 so and, and and the kind of science that I am is different from psychology. See, one of the one of the things about psychology, and I've studied psychology as well and social sciences, and one of the things about psychology is that there's such a focus on how easily duped people are, how easily fooled they are, how easily our minds can trick us, and and about bias and all of that, but. But I really am somebody that, that approached this from the standpoint of I'm wondering if that you know if we're if we're putting all of this effort into 
um, if we're putting all this effort into understanding the brain and uh, consciousness and we can't explain these phenomena and if they are real, then we need to take that into account. And so when you, when you read my book, The ESP Enigma, it's not that I, you know, just say 100%, you know, these things are real and, you know, but I'm just saying there's so much evidence. And then when I look at is there a consistent pattern of brain activity that, um, that, that, that is there a way in which as a neuroscientist I can understand, you know, what the brain is doing in this, then I should see that there's a pattern there. And once again, I, I saw this pattern pop out. So it's one of those things where I'm, I'm approaching it as someone who's um, uh, asking questions and then and testing it. But if I, you know, as I said, it's not one of those things where... All right, I, I, I'm gonna, I don't want to interrupt you, but we'll but pick sure. this up when we come back. We've got a hard break coming up here, and okay. I don't want to cut off. So we're speaking with Dr. Diane Hennessy-Powell about her life and book, The ESP Enigma, and it is a great read. To learn more about Dr. Powell and her work, visit her website at dianehennessypowell.com. That's Diane Hennessy, H-E-N-N-A-C-Y, Powell, P-O-W-E-L-L.com. Okay, we have a video for you today featuring the work of Dr. Powell addressing telepathy with autistic children. If you're listening on the dial, remember you can check that chat room out when you're next in front of your computer by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Just like a ship out on the sea 
Welcome back. If you joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Hen- Diane Hennessy Powell about her life and book, The ESP Enigma. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is a new hobby of mine, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Indeed, you might be surprised at just how much self-disclosure some of our guests share with us when they choose their music. <laughs> All right, we just played some of Drifted Blues by Eric Clapton. So please tell us, why is this music important to you, Dr. Powell, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, um, <laughs> it's not really so much the lyrics of it. It's It really <laughs> is the genre of the blues and how much I really admire Eric Clapton. I come from a family of professional mu- musicians and uh, blues and jazz and grew up with it. And the reason why I like that song is that... Um, it's, it's, what I like about the blues genre is this combination of this message in which somebody's talking about something that really is sort of it's sad and, 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 and it's a bummer, it's downer. But at the same time, if you listen to the music that's playing in the background, there's, it's really actually very uplifting. It makes you want to dance. It makes you want to move. It makes you want to... So it's, it's really, to me, it's music that really shifts the mood. So even though... What you're listening to in the words sounds like, oh, well, that'd be a bummer if that's what you focused on. I'm so, I'm, you know, I'm very, I'm left and right brained, and for me, it's, it's really, um, it, it's that, it's that discrepancy between the, the two. It's so, uh, Three Penny Opera is another good example of that. When, um, when Louis Armstrong sings, you know, Mac the Knife, you know, and if you listen to the lyrics of that, he's talking about, you know, really, you know, like a mobster type, you know, uh, environment that he's living in. But the music is extremely upbeat. So to me, it's kind of a, um, it, 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 it's, you know, I think, I think that it's fitting for the time period that we're living in, you know, in, in which people are, um, <laughs> They're, they're, they're really dealing with, this is tough times right now for a lot of people, and yet at the same time, you know, we're, we're, we're having to, um, you know, keep a positive spirit, and I think that music's one of those things that does it. But the psychiatrist in you also knows that you don't listen and not hear the words. Right, Let's... right, exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's go to patterns. Before the break, you were talking about patterns. What I'd like to do is... Uh, can we just take some very specific issues, flesh out the science a little bit, and then look at these brain patterns that you're finding in autistic uh, savants and so forth? That good with you? Yeah, we could talk about that, sure. Uh-huh. All right, so you state in your book, and I quote, Psychic phenomena have long been relegated to the fringe of scientific examination, but several Rigorously supervised studies have proven that such phenomena 
as telepathy, precognition, and psychokinesis have a scientific basis. Now, some of the words, like proven, you know, in science, we don't usually use that word, as you know. But let's, let's just take them one at a time and say, what evidence is the strongest you know of for psychokinesis? Oh, I talk about in my book, I really talk about how that, for me, is one of the um, abilities that I've seen the less, least amount of evidence for. Um, and um, so um, it, it's one of those things where, you know, when you're reading things, you know, you have to keep into account whether it's like my words or somebody else's words, um, uh, you know, or, you know, you know, what editors do to books, you know, and, and copy, you know, people's descriptions of your books and whatnot. But in terms of, like, uh, psychokinesis, I mean, I know, you know I'm familiar with the research that's been done with the random number generators, which I'm sure you've talked about before. I'm, I'm familiar with the, the research that's been done uh, where people are staring into a microscope and wanting the, you know, the, the amoeba or whatever it is to move over to one quadrant of the microscope and whatnot. And so, you know, and then and the work on a prayer and the efficacy of it and, and whatnot. And, and I would, I'd say, you know, all of that's, you know, very interesting, but, um, you know, have I um, been convinced that, you know, psychokinesis has been proven? No, I wouldn't say that. I'd just say that that's, I'm, I, you know, just laying out this is what the evidence is for it. Okay, so I'm going to take it that some copywriter wrote this quote for you. Is that yes, it? Yes, I think so. I think someone wrote that quote. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. uh, and the problem with psychokinesis, I think, for most uh, skeptics, goes to Uri Geller. You're uh -huh. familiar with Geller, of yes. course, mm -hmm. and a lot of the yeah. debunking that went on. Um, when I look at it, it seems to me that random number generators, Tiller's work, is the strongest evidence for it. Mm -hmm. Would you agree or disagree with that? Um, I think I think it is you know I think it is I I think it is in the sense that I mean I wouldn't just single out um, Tiller but I'd just say you know you have Roger Nelson sure. you have a lot of people who've been involved in that effort and you know so when you have a lot of people who are all focusing on the same thing such as uh, you know Lady Di or or O.J. Simpson you know major events that occurred in their life and death um, Lady Di I mean. When you look at that data, you can see, yeah, there's a shift, you know, in the um, in that. Um, and so, but what is that? You know, what what is it that we're even measuring? You know, you're you're showing a you know a slight reduction in randomness, you know, and um, so um, you know, you know if that's if that's how if if that is how you would define psychokinesis as having you know is is whether or not you know. Uh, people having, you know, the same thing on their mind, uh, it seems to, um, with that measuring device, show a decrease in randomness, then I'd say, okay, but, but that's not what some people mean by psychokinesis. No. So it's, it's, it really depends upon what you're using as your definition. I think that's part of the problem in this field is that, that you have um, people throwing words around as though they think that they're talking about the same thing. Okay. For most people and for our purposes, psychokinesis is the ability of mind to impact material, the physical right. universe. Right. So we go to a right. spoon bending party, and they start bending spoons. And mm -hmm. I have a son who's a physicist, and I have a friend who is a mystic, and he bends a spoon in uh, a restaurant uh, mm -hmm. by running his finger over it, and you just right. watch the tip of it fall. And my son cannot get how he does that. There's got to be a trick, even though the silverware belongs to the restaurant. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah. has there, I mean, there's never really been a study of spoon bending, has there? Well, I, I really have stayed away from the whole spoon bending thing. It just has too many issues around it, you know. And, I mean, we don't really know enough about what's going on. I mean, uh, you know, if, if consciousness is another force, and, and let's say it's a force that um, has some association with electromagnetism, it's just that it's, uh, you know, we have the weak force, the strong force, electromagnetism, you know, and gravity, and, and, and gravity um, is seems to be a different for, type of force than the other forces, and so um, and, and and consciousness, as I see it, could be a, a totally different kind of force. So we don't really know enough about that, but it could have. And and the, so there's these when you get into spoon bending. I mean, you've you've got people who are taking their skin that has a certain you know negative charge to it, and you know, and they're they're rubbing it against the spoon, which is metal, and you know, and and it has this effect of making it curl. Well. Um, if they were doing it where the the spoon was, you know, suspended in a rack and you know, and sending, you know, some message to, you know, the spoon to curl, that'd be one thing. But you know, to actually physically be manipulating it with your thumb, there's your thumb. It's just too many variables there that we don't know about. We don't know enough about, um, you know, human physiology, okay. and you know, we have. So 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 I just I stayed away from it. Too unclean. Fair response. That's a good science approach. Let's then take telepathy. Mm-hmm. What is the best evidence for telepathy? Well, um, the, the, I have been pursuing evidence for telepathy because there still isn't um, sufficient evidence for telepathy in the way that most people think of it, um, in the way that scientists would accept it. Because, you know, the problem is is that the, the conditions under which people report telepathy are, are conditions in which it predominantly occurs spontaneously and, and where there's some kind of emotional charge. And so it's the opposite of a laboratory-type setting. And so because of the fact that, you know, I've seen some anecdotes that are really interesting, I've seen the dream telepathy research, I've, you know, I've seen all of that data. But the thing is, is that it still hasn't been enough. And so I started to, one of the reasons why I started working with autistic savants is that they um, they have these abilities like um, being able to pull, you know, multiple-digit, you know, 12-digit prime numbers out of thin air when, you know, they can't even add 2 plus 2. And, you know, where are they getting that information? And when, you know, when I uh, do experiments, on, and that's been well-documented that you have these savants, that they just know stuff that, you know, you don't know how they know it. And a high percentage of them are reporting um, telepathy, and, and parents of them are reporting that they're telepathic. So I'm testing that out, and um, so and, and it's because phenomenologically, that that this ability to know something that you really shouldn't know, it, it to me that that falls into the psychic abilities you know, category, and the savants are able to do things repeatedly and reliably, and um, and they don't get bored by the test. They don't have this, um, there's a drop-off rate that oftentimes happens to psychic experiments, uh, you know, it's reported in the literature, that as the person gets bored, uh, uh, they, they, they may start off getting, you know, very high accuracy, and then it dwindles off. Whereas these, these, these kids can do this stuff day in and day out. They're just so fascinated with numbers that, it, that you don't have that problem. So... So I'm I, so I'm looking for that. Uh, that's what my telepathy project that I you know I'm doing. Uh, that's what that's all about is really trying to see if we can get something that everybody agrees. Okay, yeah, this this is the this is really what uh, 
what it's been built to do be. But, you know, I, I still um, am working on that. And, and funding is really the main reason why it hasn't happened yet. Um, it's, it's, it's a labor-intensive uh, thing, especially when the children don't live in the same city as you. Okay, well, I, I want to, you know, I want to stay with going over these right. different sure. aspects. Sure. But you, you, I, I can't go directly there because when you bring up the savant, element of things. We had we had Jason Pageant on the show, for example. Now, Jason Pageant is a fellow that lives in Seattle, Washington. He wasn't the best student in school, just, you know, a little below average in terms of his performance. He comes out of a bar one night, and he's attacked, um, hit over the head, loses consciousness, robbed, comes to in the hospital, and he's a mathematical savant. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and, and, of course, now he's at MIT, but he draws perfect fractals uh, mm-hmm. freehand. All right. Now, here, here's the deal. When you look at that kind of capability, and there are all kinds of incident, incidences where we have an individual who, as you say, can pull a prime number or can look through a phone book and then read any page to you from memory, uh, whatever line there is. In your view, you know, aren't we kind of trapped to either this, let's go back to the meat machine, either this information is already in the brain. There's no such thing as a tabula rasa. You know, the brain came pre-wired with all the knowledge in the universe and or it has to be a transceiver model able to connect to some other form of consciousness in order to get the information. And, I, and, and I'm using consciousness there like the collective unconscious of Jung. And I know you use that, so we'll just we'll call that the common ground. That's, but what I mean is there's a transceiver. Aren't we trapped either the brain is completely wired with all this information and or there is a Sheldrake's M field, mind field, or Jung's collective unconscious that we somehow are tapping into that we're pulling this and is that not the best evidence we have for consciousness as uh, a non-local event well i i would say that um i'd say that those are two of the models and 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 then one has to be open for a third model you know that, that, well, that good. Not, what like, is a third because, model? It, because being stuck in that you know that it's either that it's all in the brain or that it's that you're tapping into an Akashic field, you know, those, those are two different, um, because, so what is a third model? Yes, well, well, suggest well, well, what, just, you know, as an example, I mean, I think that thinking about information being, um, you know, holographically, um, holographically organized and, uh, is, what makes the most sense to me, you know, is that, that there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's some way in which information is organized. There's some way in which, like these savants, um, for example, a lot of them have, um, if they're musical savants, they oftentimes have perfect pitch. If they are, um, uh, anyway, it, some of them have, like a Stephen Wilshire, who can fly over a city and then just, you know, draw it in great detail afterwards, just this incredible memory. The reality is, is that that defies the neuroscience model for memory, and and you know, and the fact that a lot of these skills are better when people have damage to their brain, 
you know, it, it, once again, that goes against the neuroscience model. But then to jump from that to Sheldrake's model, you know, is a, you know, there's a whole loop leap safe there. And so, so I think that thinking about this idea of information that, 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 that we live in a multi, um, multi-dimensional universe in which information can be embedded, you know, everywhere, um, and it's very embedded and redundantly, you know, um, but, you know, that, that's, that's a different, it's a different, slightly different model from the, you know, than Sheldrake's. And so that, that's what I'm saying is it's, a, it's not an either or. Okay, so if we pursue your model and information is embedded somehow, holographically or whatever, mm-hmm. how do we access that information? Um, I mean, what is the mechanism that moves that information into our brain? It, it is clearly not the optic nerve, uh, the auditory fibers. What is the mechanism? Well, this is, and I, being a scientist, I, what I like to do is I like to generate hypotheses and then test them out. And so what I'm trying to do, um, getting back to my research, is that I'm trying to establish a baseline first for, you know, can, can we show that, you know, somebody can do this thing that, you know, people would identify as telepathy. And then if, then, and then if so, then what you do is you start testing out these different models by use, varying the variables, you know, seeing, you know, what effect does distance have, seeing... You know, just doing the experiments and seeing the effect it has and, and, and testing the model. That's what science is all about. Not just, you know, armchair speculation without, without having experiments that you can do to test the model. True. Now, it, we showed a video that you didn't see, but we showed a video during the break where you were working with uh, two autistic children, and they were... Um, they somehow knew the numbers uh, from both sides. Tell us about that. Unpack how you do that. You mean, um, and I don't know how much time we have left because I see that it's almost two o'clock. But um, in terms of when you say unpack that, I mean, what what is it that you want to know? I mean, you mean like how do I okay, understand well, it, or or, or um, no, no. Let's let's just look at it this way. We have an autistic child. And they're able telepathically to know a number that is on a board that is behind a screen. And that's the kind of research you're doing. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and what kind of hit rates are you having? Is, I mean, are we getting statistically significant uh, data? Well, um, the, the, yeah. It, I mean, my research with Haley is highly statistically significant. The problem is that I don't have the, the person who's working with her and the child separated sufficiently for it to be really the, the, the scientific protocol that skeptics would like. Because what people say is they say, well, how do I know that there isn't some little tiny movement of the board? And, and I, I watched for six, I have six hours with the recorded data watching, you know, the, the, the therapist putting the board down. And it doesn't look to me like she's, uh, you know, there's some places where you think, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's a little bit of something going on, you know, subtle cueing or whatnot. But the thing, the reason why I'm continuing to pursue it is not because of just seeing that. It, it's the story that I heard the way in which these the people working with her were surprised and they started wondering if she was telepathic. It's that it's that story and then and at the time that I met her, 
she had regressed back to using this letter board instead of typing independently. And it would have been much more convincing for me if I had seen her just type independently without having that letter board in the way. Similarly, with Ramses and his mother, I would, you know, it would be much more satisfying for me if I have them in separate rooms. The mother tells me she can do it in separate rooms, and, and, and so am I going back down there to film it? I'm going to look at that. But it's, it's one of those things where the, the conditions, I just haven't had the um, opportunity to really optimize the experimental conditions um, to, to say that, you know, I have it yet. You know, and, and you know, and if I don't, if I'm not able to get the experimental conditions optimized, uh, you know, with them, I have other children to test. But it's it's one of those things where I'm still um, I'm still exploring the phenomenon. But there's something going on that you have all of these people. I mean, I have gotten lots of emails and letters from people saying that's real, Diane. What you're doing is real, and stick with it. It's it's, it's really. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm seeing if I can, um, you know, it's like hearing about, you know, a species that might be extinct, and then you you see something that looks like it in the bush, and you're there trying to capture it on camera. Right. Okay. I, I you know, I, I wish we had two hours. Uh, patterns. Very quickly, can you, in a minute or so, tell us what you're seeing by way of patterns in brain scans or brain imaging? Uh, that is different with your autistic uh, savage. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, one of the things is that for people who are neurotypicals, um, so those of us that don't, don't have, you know, any kind of brain injuries or whatever, um, we have the highest incidence of psychic uh, phenomena reported during dreaming sleep. And so if you look at what's going on in the brain during dreaming sleep, what you see is that the outer part of the brain, the cortex, the analytical part of the brain, is very, very quiet, just like it is in people who are meditators. And so it, it appears that, you know, it, 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 it's consistent with what people say is that you need to get yourself out of the way of the information. It's, it's our own thinking and analyzing and, and, and um, ego or whatever that gets between us and actually, you know, sort of proceeding, you know, sort of pure perception of, you know, whatever the information is. And, uh, and so, you know, that's, so that's really, in, in a nutshell, what, what the um, pattern is, is that it's, it's a much more right brain than left brain activity. It's, it's much more using the part of the brain that's unconscious, that's not the, the dominant part of the brain that's active when we're in our normal waking state of consciousness. Very, very interesting. Well, we're, we're out of time. Uh, and I, I have to tell you that, again, I love your book, I love your work, and I hope you... Uh, uh, we'll stay in touch with us and keep us a pace of uh, of the new developments. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure, our pleasure. The book again for all of you out there, the ESP Enigma, the scientific case for psychic phenomena. You can get it in all your bookstores, and, of course, you can get it online. And the website, one more time, dianehennessypowell.com. That's dianehennessypowell.com. All right. Again, thank you, Dr. Powell, for your willingness to share your work with us and for you know, continuing to do the kind of exploratory research you are. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And until then, do remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. 
For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.